Uh, might as well start off by saying today is the uh, it's the 21st, mm-hmm. and so 23rd is one day away, so we have the Rapture Saturday. And so make sure you pack your bags and, and everybody and get ready. Give them all away. Pack your bags and give them all away. Yeah, yeah, everybody, if you have anything that you don't want, you're not going to need after Saturday. So just put it in a will in my name and then uh, make it irrevocable so that when you're still here on Sunday, it'll be too late. I'll have all of your stuff. So there you go. That's my uh, starting. Mercy, you'll give it back. Oops, I got to get the Bible. Sorry. Uh, where are you? I'm getting started a little late here. So let me see. We got... Uh, Psalm 119 today, it'll be, uh, uh, let's see, where are we? We're in Psalm 119, verse 153, which is the letter Resh. Resh. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Okay, let me pull something out of here. It might be in here. Let me see. It is. So, we've got a couple prayer requests, and I might as well read you this right now for anybody that knows Paul that's online. Um, I just got this from Elaine's Facebook page, his wife, and it was um, now 18, 20 minutes ago. It says... um, Uh, Praise the Lord for his goodness. Paul just came out of surgery. His valve was the source of his infection, and it was replaced successfully. And then she says, thank everyone for your prayers, and please continue them for his recovery. And he certainly needs it because he's been in the hospital back on and off almost as much as our brother Graham was over in Scotland. I mean, it's been almost a month he's been back and forth in the hospital. So I have a prayer request request from, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Don, who I mentioned from time to time, I heard from him today, um, he's got cancer, and he is, the first week of October, he's going to have radiation for four weeks, and he says that this is anticipated to extend his life for several months. In other words, he's in a, a, a bad situation, and the radiation is just there to keep him alive, and uh, so I would pray that the Lord would intervene on that, and that this would be behind him, and then I have... Um, uh, let's see here. Another one from uh, Angela, who attends online. Her daughter, Lauren, is very sick and starting to have liver failure. So we want to keep them in prayer. And um, then we have something on prayer that I'll read you. This is from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It says, with the earliest birds, I will make one more singer in the great concert hall of God. I will not want more rest or longer time to myself to consider all my troubles I will give my best time, the first hour of the day, to the praise of my God. So, thank you, Charles Spurgeon. And we'll go ahead and ask the Lord for our petitions. Heavenly Father, we certainly do pray for these people that are facing either recovery or facing uh, radiation in hopes of extending life, or for the lady who's starting to have liver failure, that she would be brought back to full health and we pray for our brother tom here who has cancer and we're waiting for his next uh 
evaluation to see how things are with him. And Lord, we praise you that uh, our dear sister Pat is back in Sarasota safely. And Lord, we just thank you for your kind hand upon us and all that you've done for us. Thank you for getting us through the cleanup process. And I know everybody here has been doing that. And we're grateful that we have that because it means that we still have houses to clean up. Mm -hmm. And so you're so good to us. And we thank you for that. We certainly pray for all the people in Puerto Rico who are now facing what others have been facing in the recent past. It's just a, a giant cleanup, no power, difficult conditions. And I would pray that people there would come together instead of tearing each other apart. Uh, it's it's could go either way with this. And so if, if um, you can uh, send people there that will intervene and keep cooler heads to prevail there while it's being rebuilt, we would pray for that. And uh, we thank you for the chance to get into your word today. What a precious word it is. And we just we commit the uh, book of Romans chapter 8 in this study to you. And we pray that whatever we say will be proper, it will be according to your wisdom, it will be without error. And if it is, I will assume the responsibility for that, and I would ask that people would figure out where my error is and, and um, turn to that which is right. So uh, I just ask this, that you would be glorified, that each person here would be edified, and that uh, Jesus would be exalted. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen. Uh, let's see. Um, before I start into Romans... Last week we were talking, I, I brought up the subject of forgiveness and a couple points that I thought of afterward, which I probably should have immediately brought up. And, uh, you know, I was very tired last week. This week I'm just tired. So um, uh, is um, one of the things about forgiveness is that Christ forgives everybody of every sin that they have ever committed potentially. As long as you can remember the two words, potentially and actually, uh, it'll help you understand the doctrine of forgiveness, forgiving others, being forgiven by others. Is that when we are uh, offended by somebody, we need to offer them forgiveness. But it can only be potential. It cannot be actual until they receive it. Okay? And so uh, you can't actually forgive somebody that doesn't come to you and repent. You're not required to do so. The Bible never teaches that. And then the second point I wanted to say about that is that I gave one verse that is used very often about you must forgive everybody is um, that uh, Jesus said on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. There's a couple points about that. First is, and I mentioned it last week, they know not what they do. When somebody willingly offends you, they know what they're doing. There's no <laughs> obligation for you to forgive them, okay? None until they ask for forgiveness, okay? And secondly, here's my question so that you will be able to process this properly. Did Jesus, or did the Father, were they forgiven? When he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, were they forgiven? Yes. Who was forgiven? The ones that accepted it. The ones that accepted it. Were the Jewish people as a nation forgiven? No. no. There you go. Perfect answer right there. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Does not extend to all people at all times. It extends to people who have asked for forgiveness and who have come to the cross and received that forgiveness, okay? The Jewish people in Acts chapter 2 repented. And the term repent is something that is so highly abused by people as if, you know, you need to stop all of your sins before you're saved. That's not what repentance means. Repentance means to change your mind. And that's why the only context you'll ever find repent and be forgiven of your sins is in Acts chapter 2 because they had nailed their Lord to the cross. 
They were the stewards of God's oracles. They were the people that knew the Messiah was coming. As a matter of fact, the Samaritan woman, remember in uh, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, what did she say? We know that Messiah is coming. These people, even the Samaritans, knew that he was coming. They nailed him to the cross. They rejected him, and so they required repentance in order to be saved. That's not the same with other people. Paul does speak of repentance elsewhere, but it is not in the context of um, turning for merit, okay? We'll, we'll get to that verse eventually, but we won't worry about it right now because I don't know where it is. But the only time that somebody is actually told you must repent in order to be saved is in Acts chapter 2. Yes? For someone who does not believe Jesus, yeah. if they truly do not understand, right. they are not forgiven. Absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. No person is forgiven of their sins until they come to Christ. There's not one person. A, there's a verse for that, right? It says he will punish sin wherever it is found. That's right. And it also says your iniquity is separated from you. So, your sins are separated from your God so that he cannot hear you. He will not hear. The only time that God will hear the prayer of a sinner is when he asks to receive Jesus. Other than that, he is a sinner and God will not hear his prayers. Their iniquities have separated them from their God. They must come to God in faith in order to for God to hear their prayers. And that must be through a mediator, and that mediator is Christ. Yes? Cornelius. Cornelius. He said, your prayers are heard. That's right. And he was praying for the light or what? The what? Was he praying for more light? or He was praying for more light. Your hearers have come up as an offering to God. In other words, and so what did, what did Peter tell him to do? Come to Jesus. Yeah. Absolutely. So in other words, he was hearing that somebody has the potential for coming to Christ. He knew this person, and he selected him for that reason. Okay? And so when Peter went to Cornelius' house and told him about the Messiah that he knew must be out there, probably heard it, you know, from the Jews talking or whatever. He's in the land. He said, this is how you will be saved. God heard that, and they were... Well, the, the angel that appeared to Cornelius yes. and said, send to Peter, said, your prayers are heard to come up as, as an offering. That's right. That is exactly right. So, But they were heard in the sense that he was looking to be reconciled to God. They weren't heard in the sense that they were responded to yeah. until he came to Christ not and then they were responded to. Yeah. Absolutely right. And all of Acts, we need to remember, all of Acts is what? Descriptive. Descriptive. There, there might be three prescriptive verses in the book of Acts. Three things that say you must do this and it still holds today. Acts chapter 15 is prescriptive in the sense that it told the early church what to do, but some of those things in Acts chapter 15 aren't required anymore. They're not under Paul's hand of direction to Gentiles today. They were simply given as edicts in order for things to go well between them and the Jews at that time. Well, but. Was it 1339? None other name given under heaven. Uh, that's right, by which you must be saved. That's right, is Jesus. Absolutely. So it is Jesus only by which a person is saved. And the only way that God is going to hear those prayers is when you come to Jesus and say, I need to be reconciled to you, and then that will happen. But Acts is descriptive. Do not use the book of Acts or doctrine other than understanding what God is trying to tell you as far as how the church was established, what is going on, but it's not doctrine for our daily lives. You're gonna find very, very little priest. If you were to take a D 
or a P and put it in front of every single verse of the book of Acts. This is descriptive. This, this is prescriptive. You might have three P's in the entire book of Acts that we need to do this today. I, I mean, very, very few. Read them in context. Read it with the understanding that God is describing what happened in the early church in order to lead us to Jesus. When he selected Cornelius, he did it for a reason. When he selected meeting this person at this particular time in this jail, he did it for a reason. It is descriptive. It is describing what happened, but there is nothing that is telling us we must do that thing as well. We're simply learning how God established the early church. And then what does he say all the way? What does he say especially in Acts chapter 9? But it's implied all the way through the book. Paul, go. He is the messenger. He is the one that will carry my message. And then again and again, we see in the New Testament epistles, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Peter is the apostle to the Jews, That's or the circumcision. And the reason why that's important is because Paul is where we get our church age doctrine. Everything in the Bible is useful. It's profitable. Okay, don't make the mistake that I'm ever saying that anything in the Bible is not. We've been in, as I say, week after week, we've been in the Torah now for five years. But everything is pointing symbolically to what Christ will do. And then Paul will define what that means in our lives as the Gentile-led church age. And that goes back to the dispensationalism that I talked about on Sunday, is that right after Paul's letter come all of the letters to the Jews. It's written to the people of the end times. Peter is the apostle to the circumcision, and that's why his letters are right there, along with James, is saying, you guys need to pay attention because there's and we're in the end times. You missed the boat of what was going on during this dispensation, and you need to pay heed to these Jewish men that wrote these things, because this is end times doctrine, something for you to understand that we are no longer in the dispensation of grace. We are now in the ending of Daniel's uh, 9, 24 through 27, those uh, seven years. We're in that time frame, getting ready for the millennial reign of Christ, and you need to make sure that your doctrine is set on Christ, because it's coming. You're living in it right now. So if you just take the Bible and look at it, how it's structured, it will show you what God is doing. But Paul is where we get our prescriptive doctrine from. And when you're reading Paul, not everything is prescriptive. When he says, I was shipwrecked seven times, that doesn't mean that we need to go out and be shipwrecked seven times. He's simply describing something that happened to him. You put a D by that. That's descriptive. But when Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, to... Put a P by it. He is prescribing for you to do something. Sometimes he gives a command. Sometimes he gives an exhortation. But Paul is where we get our doctrine. Hence, we're in the book of Romans now. After having done almost three full years of Acts and the wonderful, wonderful transition from what Christ did for us into what Christ has done for us. And we see that in the writings of Paul. This is what he is describing. So we'll get into it right now. We're in Acts chapter 8 and we're in verse Four. So, um, let's see here. We're going to start with 8, verse 4. And, uh... Did I miss last week? What's that? Did I miss last week? You didn't watch it online? You weren't here, were you? Well, I got 721 no. written down, so... Oh, that was two weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you were here, weren't you? I was going to say, he was It was Jim who missed the week before, and I... I oh. You didn't bring your pen. Yeah, that's right. No pen. You didn't have a pen. I got lots of pens over there in the today. pulpit. Just go grab one if you need it. Anyway, we're in the book of Romans, and uh, let's see here. We're in chapter 
8, verse 4, and you've got the NASB, is that correct? Yes, sir. Why don't you read real loud so everybody can hear, so we have two Bible versions, because yours is based on the, the Alexandrian text, and so it might so read you differently. Want four? Uh, yeah, four. So that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, little difference in this, very little. It says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So one little difference there, but you can see the Alexandrian text will have some differences from the Byzantine. And, uh, you know, people will argue which one is better. Hey, you know what? When you take them and you analyze them, there are no doctrinal points of difference, which will say uh, this now leads to heresy. There are differences. I'd be the first one to admit that. But when it comes down to core doctrines, none are missing. None of them are missing in either of these texts. Okay, so verse 8, 4, the previous verse, which is 3, let me read it to you again, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay? I, it just, I'm still, every time I read that, I get chills because it's such a marvelous thing what God did for us. He stepped out of eternity, united with human flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So when he walked around, everybody, you know, everybody thought he was just a guy. He's just like all the rest of us. He had no idea that this was the king of the universe walking among them. It, it, just imagine that, that he was willing to do that and to come in such a lowly state. What does it say in the book of Luke? That uh, It names the women, certain women tend to do his needs, right? Imagine in the, the Israel at that time, that was something that you would not want to have done. You'd say, well, I need to take care of myself or I'm gonna have maybe my brother take care of me, but certainly not women, right? It was just a, a cultural thing there. And he was willing to do that. And he was willing to be born in a stable. He was willing to be uh, crucified on a cross. And every single thing that he did in his life shows the marvel of what God did in Christ. And that verse right there, I mean, we just need to dwell on it and think about it. But anyway, that's uh, verse 3. Then verse 4, um, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in verse 3. This verse is a follow-up to that. By coming in the likeness of sinful flesh... Being found in the appearance of a man, as it says in Philippians 2, verse 8. He's found in the appearance of a man. He prevailed over the flesh for us. In reality, in him, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, as Paul says. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What he did was not for his own sake. There was no need for him to do it. What he did was for our sake that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Once again, that takes us right back to the fact, are we under the law? No, it says it explicitly right there. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Why? Because, yeah, hallelujah, because Christ fulfilled it. The whole point that we see again and again, and you wait till I typed up uh, uh, Leviticus 19, I think, this week, and... Dr. Um, Carrico over here says that I have a broken wrist because um, I my wrist has not hurt at all until Monday. And I typed it was I get up at four and I start typing and I have to go to work for about an hour usually on Monday. And then I come home and I finished about seven o'clock and I typed all day long. And the reason why is because um, it was a long. Yes, it was chapter 19. There's a very long um, 37 verses, but there's really no logical place to divide those verses okay 
And so I could have, as I said, I, I, and it would be very tempting to do something like this, is to say, well, I'm going to go from uh, 1 through 18, and I'm going to type 18 verses of analysis, which means I don't have to study 37 verses, and then I'm just going to give them 30 minutes of fluff, and as Burke calls it, throwing them a bone. And I absolutely refuse to do that. I'm getting one chance at preaching on this word in my life, and eventually I'm going to die, and if I give 30 minutes of fluff instead of evaluating the entire thing, then that means that I will have wasted 30 minutes at the end of my life when I didn't get to a passage that I could have gotten to, if you understand my logic. The word is all that matters, and I don't care about the life applications. I don't care about the fluff because we can talk about fluff for eternity. It's this that we need to know now. So let me read you a couple of these things that are in chapter 19. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. Okay, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. Okay, has everybody revered in this place right now their mother and their father perfectly? I, mom is shaking her head no, so I, I assume I failed at that. Okay, um, think about it. If you were perfect in revering your mother and your father, all right, keep my Sabbaths. Uh, do not turn to idols nor make for yourselves molded gods. Let's go down uh, down here. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. Well, we don't even have harvesting in most of our homes anymore, so that doesn't apply. But you know, if you believe you're under the law, you've got to do that, right? I mean, these people that say, well, we're still under the law of Moses and we have to do all these things, it, it, it's insane. But um, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Okay, and you just go through all of these things. And you say, well, um, line carnally with this. Keep my statutes with that. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh nor tattoo marks on your body. Do not prostitute your daughter. You know, if a stranger dwells in you, your land, you shall not mistreat him. On and on and on. There's 37 verses of stuff, and you're reading them, and you're saying, well, I kind of blew that one, and I kind of blew that one. Well, guess what? As far as God is concerned, every single one of those 37 verses is fulfilled in us because of Christ. That's what Paul is telling us. The righteous requirements of the law, which all of these are righteous requirements. Don't mistreat your neighbor. Don't sell your daughter off as a whore. All of these things, they're righteous requirements. They are fulfilled in us. Guess what? Israel failed at all of them. I mean, they failed at every single one of them. Just go and do a study of the, uh, and I, I'll back that up, that statement up when we get to that sermon. You'll see how Israel failed it. And the point is that Israel is a picture of humanity in general. They, they, he just selected a group of people living under the most opportune conditions on the planet. They have God as their king. They're living in a land which produces grain. It produces, it's flowing with milk and honey. They have two rains a year, so they have crops all year long. They're, the mountains hold in the moisture. Everything is beautiful. Everything is green. It wasn't for 2,000 years. That's a whole different study. But while they were in the land, before they were exiled, it was like paradise. Everything that they needed, they were on a trade route so they could trade with other people. The amount of wealth that was gained, for example, by Solomon was – I was reading The Economist um, – not The Economist, uh, Zero Hedge, which was linked to The Economist magazine a couple months ago, and they – picked the wealthiest people in all of human history and they put all of them up in a chart and they said this person was worth 16 billion and guess who was the wealthiest person sure. by far solomon by far they estimated his wealth and by it was like 27 trillion dollars or something I'm, I'm exaggerating of course but it was so far above anybody else 
They knew because this man was in the perfect spot in the world for Israel to flourish and to prosper, and yet they frittered it away. And they didn't build that. They went in, it was That's right. There. They didn't build anything. The, the, the land was already, the trees were planted. There is something about planting new trees in there, which they had a requirement on, but the houses were already there. All they had to do is kill the wicked inhabitants, and it was theirs. Voila. The grain that was grown that season, they got to eat right away. It says the day that they went over the Jordan, um, maybe it was the next day, just within a day or so. Yeah, they they ate of the grain of the the, uh, land. And then what happened? The manna stopped the next day. So every possible thing in the perfect conditions, and they blew it. And the reason why I'm saying that is, I, I said it a moment ago, is because it is just a picture of us. It is a picture of all people on earth. You know, um, Jews are just the same as everybody else, just more so, okay? You just remember that, that they're just more like everybody than everybody else. And God did that for a reason, so that we can see all of our failings. But these requirements, these righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us because of Christ Jesus. So, um, let's hear. This is the Bible's doctrine of substitution. One thing taking the place of another in order to accomplish an act or provide a benefit, okay? Christ did something, we received the benefit for it. He went to the cross, we get his righteousness. He lived perfectly, the law is fulfilled in us. This is substitution. God is doing something that we could not possibly do on our own, proven by 1,500 years of people under law, okay? All right, in the Old Testament, an animal was sacrificed in place of the sins of the people. Boy, did we, a lot of sacrifice sermons weren't there from uh, Leviticus chapter 1 up until about Leviticus. Well, we're still going through them, kind of. And Leviticus 16 will be the culmination of that. Not this week, not the next Sunday, but after that, we'll start into the three Leviticus 16 sermons. And we'll see the culmination of the sacrificial system. And then from there, all of these different laws and things will be coming into play more in the second half of Leviticus. But... We have all of these sins that are it's supposed to be taken care of by these sacrifices. The animal that was brought forward, okay, was supposed to be perfect. It was supposed to be without blemish. It was supposed to be a certain age or a certain type, depending on the sin. Every single one of them, as we have seen, every single one of them points to Christ in one aspect or another. This type of animal for this reason. This type of animal for this reason. Because this takes care of this type of sin. This takes care of this type of trespass. And sometimes only parts of the animal are uh, put on the altar. The fat and these certain intestinal parts or internal parts. And the reason why is because they picture Christ being offered as an offering to God. Okay, The animal had done no wrong. We need to remember that. This animal is innocent. It didn't kill my neighbor. It didn't steal, you know, uh, the bike from my neighbor. It didn't do any of those things. I'm the one that was guilty, and this animal is going to take my place. Now you think, oh, I love my dogs, right? I love my dogs. When they die, I always have that remorse in my heart, and I know when you lose a cat, if you like cats, then uh, you have that, that pain in your heart as well. And we get attached to our animals. They were attached to their own animals just the same. I mean, they were with them all day, every day. They're feeding them twice a day, and, you know, this they're part of their family. But they had to eat just like we had to eat, and they were the ones that took care of those things. Um, and then they had to take those animals as well, and they had to 
bring them down as a sacrifice. And it had to be a perfect one. And certain of them had to be like a firstborn or something like that. It had to be, you know, all of these different requirements for the sacrifices, but they were done for a reason, okay? So the animal had done no wrong, but your sin, the thing that you have done wrong is transferred, transferred to that animal as a temporary means of what we would call expiation and propitiation. All right, expiation means that your sins are carried away. That's expiating sins. Propitiation means that you are being reconciled to God. Propitious means happy. So the place of propitiation, which is the mercy seat, that's where the place of happiness is brought back between God and man. Okay, so expiation and propitiation are two parts of the same thing. All right, these sacrifices look forward to the coming of Christ who would die on behalf of fallen man. As it says in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats. There you go. The blood of bulls and goats could never carry away sin. They were unacceptable except in type and in picture. Okay. This is a question I get a lot. I got it twice this week. Is um, um, uh, Were Jews saved without Jesus? And the answer is no. They were saved in anticipation of Jesus. Okay. From the very beginning, a Messiah was promised. And all the way through the Old Testament, this Messiah is promised. Those people who are living, David, you know, we've already read David's quote that Paul gave a couple chapters ago, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And he knew that that could only come about by the Messiah. These people were looking forward to it. And if you want proof of that, I sent this response to the people that asked this question, is that uh, um, one of them was what I said earlier, John chapter 4. We know that Messiah is coming, and he will teach us all things. Another one is, um, um, let me read it to you, John chapter 1. Why do you think this is in here? It's because he wants us to understand that these people were saved not apart from Christ, but because of Christ. So John chapter 1, it says, um, um, one of the two who heard John, this is verse 40, speak, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. the Messiah. These people were waiting for the Messiah. To this day, Jewish people claim that there are Messiahs. They have it all the time. This person is the Messiah. This person is the Messiah. Billboards in Israel that say the Messiah is here, and it's some Rabbi Shlomo Yekmeel or something, right? I mean, these, and they're claiming this guy, and they've been doing this for thousands of years. The people that were living in faith were living in anticipation of the one that would lead them away from the sacrificial system, not into the sacrificial system. But they didn't understand how it would happen. They just knew that this one would reconcile us to God. They didn't understand that he would be the sacrificial system, right? It's not that he did away with the sacrificial system. It's that he is the sacrificial system that all of those things only look forward to. So the Old Testament sacrificial system is done away with, but the sacrificial system itself is not done away with. Every single person that is reconciled to God must go through the Lamb of God. They must. There is no coming to God apart from the Lamb. So understand that. And um, so we have the expiation, we have the propitiations. They looked forward to the coming Christ who would die on behalf of fallen man. In like manner, the righteousness of Christ is what? Transferred to us, right? And got that? So he gets our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we 
might become the righteousness of God in him. Right. All right. So that's, there's a, a uh, what do you call it? Substitution goes both ways. The innocent animal had to die, but they must have gotten something out of it. It's not just, well, you're dying for my sins and that's it. They got the innocent animal's innocence. And that innocent animal got all of the sin and wrath upon it. That's why it died. Its blood was poured out. The blood was sprinkled in a certain place, depending on where what the right was. But that blood proved death. There had to be death in order for, um, as it says in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And when he says the shedding of blood, he's not speaking about cutting your arm and a little blood coming out. He's saying that the blood is the life. In other words, without death, there is no remission. That's, a, that's a, what you would call a paraphrase. It doesn't actually say that. It says without the shedding of blood, but the shedding of blood means death. That animal had to die in order for this sin to be transferred to him and taken away from you. And at the same time, the innocence is then given to that person. Okay. It's either 17 or 18, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's absolutely right. And that's from Genesis chapter 9. I think it's verse 6. It's again in Leviticus. And it's all the way through, even to the book of Hebrews. The life is in the blood. Without the shedding of that blood, there is no remission. The life can, can must we end. Can a rabbit trail here? Yeah, please. You said that he came in the lightest of simple flesh, and we looked on him, we didn't know it. How did John the Baptist know well, he obviously did under inspiration of the Spirit. Yeah. And then these people, they said he's the Messiah, but like I say, they do this all the time over there. John the Baptist knew. I don't know how he knew. It must have been under inspiration of the Spirit, but he knew that this was a sacrificial he was coming to die. Yeah. And so somehow he knew that. Whereas when they claimed that he was Messiah in John chapter 1 and John chapter 4, when she said that, they didn't know that he would die for their sins. But John's words are very, very specific. That's right. Yes. Oh, he said, I did not know, but the one who sent me to baptize told oh, me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The one on Thank you. whom Absolutely. you see. The Holy Spirit descend. So Absolutely. So it was by. he knew. That's right. It well, was. that was the baptism of Jesus. So when he said this, it, he hadn't already baptized. Well, I don't know. That's that's John chapter 1, and it is a rabbit trail, but you've asked it, so we've got to figure it out right now. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, John chapter 1, but the baptism is, I don't think, recorded in John, is it? It's no. recorded in Matthew and Luke. So I don't know if we can actually get that timeline out of the two, but let me really quickly look at that. Just because you asked, and I hate to not give you at least some type of a, and answer, John there says. There will be um, people online who wonder also. Oh well, absolutely. Let's see here. Um, where is that? Um, uh, I'm sorry, John. Why do you baptize if you're not the Christ? I know him. Uh, next day, John stood and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." It, it could be that he had already been baptized. It doesn't show us the timeline here. Okay, um, he was baptizing. I did not know him, but that he should should be revealed. This is verse 31 to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending upon him. Okay, so there you go. So he was baptized, and then he made the proclamation. So there you go. She got the answer. That's the timeline. He was baptized. He knew it. And then he made the proclamation. This is the one that is the Lamb of God. Now, whether he actually knew that the Lamb of God meant that he would be a sacrificial lamb, I, you know, I would assume that's why he made that proclamation, that this person has come to die for the sins of the people. But I don't want to get into John's head. Okay, but he did say it. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But whether he actually saw the cross or not, 
I don't know. He 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 understood that this person was the sin, the the sin offering though. However, that would come about. Build in the spirit, but confused in the flesh. Ooh, that's right. You know, that's that's exactly right. So he could have he could have known because of the spirits saying this is the Lamb of God, but confused in the flesh. How can he be the Lamb of God? You know, right? So it's the same thing as saying that we are to be living sacrifices, right? Well, that's a contradiction. If we're alive, then we're not a sacrifice. But the Bible asks us to be living sacrifices. So. You know, whatever whatever John saw and whatever he thought he was right, but maybe he didn't know all of the information. I don't know. One more thing? Okay. D.O. Moody, before they had PA systems, they had those soundboards. Right. He was in the tabernacle adjusting that soundboard, and he used John 129. Huh. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away, and then he twisted, and they was a derelict up asleep in the balcony, and he woke up to this. Who is this lamb? I don't oh, want to know this lamb. He takes away my sin. Is that a real story? Yes, it oh, is. Oh, I've true. never heard that. Yes, yes. Oh, never heard that. Wow, well, well. I was saved because he Because he heard him saying that. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Wow. Isn't that something? I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Okay. So we have that. Um, uh, read that once again. Christ would die on behalf of fallen man. In like manner, the righteousness of Christ is transferred to us. We got the substitution there. He did the work fulfilling the law's righteous requirement, and that is granted to those who trust in his work. That's all it is. It is, you have met the righteous requirements of the law if you trust in his work. Now, here's a question because I bring it up every single week, and I will continue to bring it up in case somebody turns this on and is stuck in the Hebrew Roots movement or the Seventh-day Adventists. If you are observing the laws of Israel... If you are observing the feasts of Israel, if you are not eating pork and all of these things, are you trusting in the finished work of Christ? No. You can't be. It's impossible. If you think that you are obtaining God's favor by not eating a pork chop, you are not trusting in the work of Christ. You are not saved. Or if you were saved when you were young, you are the one that will suffer for not pursuing Christ. You will never lose your salvation. I am absolutely adamant about that. I will never change that doctrine. It is what the Bible teaches. But you can sure lose your joy, and you will certainly lose your rewards. If you are trying to be justified before God, apart from Christ, you are not trusting Christ. It's that simple. So, I, I, and I'll continue to repeat that week after week after week, because it's such a serious thing. This is what Paul is saying. We have Christ's righteousness because we believe, we trust it. Yes. I was going to say, very often we impute the lack of knowledge about what God was doing to people of that day. If right. they were close in the scriptures and they knew there was going to be a virgin birth and all, uh, you know, I read a book about the love story of Mary and Joseph and it, and, uh, it seemed to say that the people of Israel had a, a saying of, you know, may your daughter be the one that's, you know. Oh, and I'm sure they did. I'm sure. There's a lot that, I mean, we assume that they're as far, they're as far away as, as we, we are. are. That's right. But, but they, they were much closer true. and they were anticipating the right. Messiah. Right. And they knew that it would come from the house of David. They right. knew that it would come from this certain line. And so there were probably people that were saying, you know, maybe this will be the one. Right. But who would expect an unmarried girl, you know, and, and yeah. from Nazareth, even though he's not really from Nazareth and all the confusing things. It would have taken a real genius to figure that out. And that's why nobody figured it out. And that's why so few actually followed him right to the cross. And until after the cross, 
even after the cross, I should say, well, so few. We've got to keep going. Go ahead, they, one more, and no more talking. They knew because when Herod asked them where, where Poseidon was going to be born. That's right. They knew they, where. They knew it. That's right. They just didn't believe it. <laughs> right. Well, they, they knew where he would be born, but there are all these other scriptures that also say things. And so to tie all of them together, I, I just don't think it would be possible because we're still tying them together to this day. We are still, let's, let's, we got to go on. Yeah. We, I, I, the people that are online and I, if they can't hear you, then it's going to be distracting. So, um, uh, let's see here. Um, he did the work. We need to trust in his work. Okay. Because of the work of Christ, we have the ability. We have the ability to move from Adam to Jesus. That doesn't mean we move from Adam to Jesus. We have the ability to do so. The sin transfers to his cross, that's made explicit in the Bible, his righteousness transfers to us. It is a one-to-one -one transfer, okay? Our sin, his righteousness, okay? So, done. This fulfillment of the law is granted to those who, as Paul says, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the same concept as verse 8-1. Let me read that to you again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, okay? Um, it's the same concept there. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? That's, it's almost a one-to-one -one comparison on those two verses. To understand this often misrepresented phrase, refer back to the comments on 8.1. I read those to you a couple weeks ago. People will say, well, see, you have to do something in order to be in the spirit. No, you are already in the spirit. You are already there. This is a, not a position of merit, but a, one of standing, okay? Anyway, in short, though, believers are in Christ positionally the moment that they call on him. We are justified, and we have moved from Adam to Christ. It's done. When you believe, you receive, you move from Adam to Christ. That's what John three eighteen. those who don't believe are condemned already. Those who do believe, there's no condemnation in them. You have been saved, okay? However, we can... And we often do walk contrary to this positional change because we are still in our fallen bodies. We, when we fail, it isn't the fault of the Spirit who has sealed us, but our carnal selves working to satisfy their own lusts. And we all struggle with this to some extent or another. All of us. Anybody that says that they don't, I'd like to have a conversation with you, and I, I'll be as annoying as possible, and eventually I'll wear you out. I'll prove that you, are, you struggle with it in one way or another. But... How will this affect us if not for salvation? Because it's not going to affect us for salvation. The answer is through rewards and losses. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll all receive our rewards for our proper living and losses for our failures. Therefore, it's important for us to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, before I give the life's application, go ahead. Oh, obviously God did not want us to be able to figure it out by rational Abs. putting together the pieces that's beforehand. right that's right it's like this right here he god does not want us to figure out beforehand the times and the seasons let me read that again because saturday is rapture day right uh, okay mm -hmm. let me read that uh, I'm according gonna go, to somebody yeah according to somebody i'm going to take you to acts chapter one because you said that it, it pertains to the same thing people could not figure out all of the d details of what messiah would do they knew where he would be born they knew this and they knew that but they couldn't make a full picture of it and what does it say in the book of uh, 1 or 2 Peter? It says that the, these prophets received the word and they searched what they had written, diligently trying to figure it out. Now, that's a paraphrase of it, but they were trying to figure out what they had actually written. 
Even the prophets who were inspired to write what they wrote had no idea. And they would look and they'd read. They probably read it until the dying day saying, what does this mean? And they had no idea. Now imagine having prophecies, dozens and dozens, hundreds. And, and if you take the book of Leviticus, thousands of types and pictures of Christ and say, how does all this point to Christ? Every single week when we do a sermon, I'm astonished at how much Jesus there is in a single verse sometimes. In one verse, you might have 15 pictures of Jesus, and you might only have four words. It's, it's crazy. Anyway, well, we'll go back really quickly to Acts chapter 1, and uh, just so we have a, uh, uh, an idea of what we should be pursuing, it says, um, and um, this, I'll start in verse 4, being assembled together with them, this is Jesus, he commanded them not to part from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Woohoo! They're going to get the Spirit, right? So, um, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Would anybody that is expecting the church age ask the following words? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They had no idea that there would be a Gentile-led church age. These guys, schooled by Jesus, living with Jesus, were asking about the kingdom age. They were asking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, which did not exist because it ended what with, uh, what was his name, Zedekiah, way back before the Babylonian exile, and they never had a kingdom after that. And he was a puppet king before that. The real kingdom that they were looking for was the kingdom of Solomon that extended all the way to the Euphrates River and all the way down. It was this giant kingdom full of wealth and prosperity and blessing. That is what they were thinking about, okay? Here is his answer to these Jews thinking that the kingdom age is coming. Here comes the kingdom age. We're going to be sitting on thrones with our Lord. He said, it is not. Now, are these church people? The answer is yes, they're Jews, but they are now church people. They are going to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. They have to wait until the fullness of Pentecost to come. It says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And people send me video after video after video after video. This is absolute proof the rapture is coming. This person has biblical evidence of the rapture. They say he can tell from the Bible when the rapture is going to be. And that's untrue. It is absolutely untrue. That person is misusing scripture. He's not using scripture at all. He is misusing it. Okay? So that is what he said. It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put under his own authority. And I'm going to take you very quickly, just so that, because it all pertains to what we're looking at here in Romans. It just happens to also pertain to Saturday. Okay? So I'm going to take you to 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to read you what Paul said. Okay? Paul said right here, and he said, i got to get to chapter 5, and he said exactly the same term that Jesus used. Do you think he's going to contravene what Jesus said to the people that are establishing the church? No, he's going to support what Jesus said. He said, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. You're not going to know. You are not. People will use that verse right there, and they will say, see, the Lord says we can know when the Lord is coming, because, and they take and they twist Paul's words. If you do the study of the surrounding verses, you are not going to know. It is going, the day of the Lord is speaking of the seven years of tribulation. 
it is going to come as a thief in the night, and it is going to be set off by an event known as the rapture. When the rapture happens, then will come the unveiling of the Antichrist and the seven years of tribulation. Not before. We are not going to know who the Antichrist is. I don't ever want to know who he is. I want to know who Jesus is. My hope is not in Antichrist. My hope is not in a loser. My hope is in the winner, the Lord of creation. Jesus said it's not for us to know. Paul repeated that. And people, I'll say on, uh, I'll say this again at the um, uh, Prophecy Update on Sunday, but I just, as curious, I typed in 23 September Rapture, just as curious, onto YouTube. I took the first 12, first 12 videos, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos. People are profiting off of this. Every time you click onto a video, they get profit, right? Some of them had over 8 million hits. Now imagine monetizing a video and having 8 million hits. You are getting a check every month of tens of thousands of dollars lying to people. And you and people say, oh, this is an honest person. He knows what he's talking about. Now he's, he's misusing scripture. And I have to tell you this. I, John Holler and I said this to each other a couple months ago. If we wanted to be rich and we wanted to have a lot of people following us on YouTube, we just do that nonsense. I could have three, four, five hundred thousand people tomorrow clicking on videos if I wanted to make up something stupid like that. Right? I get all this money. Is it worth it? Every single time that I mention doctrine in a prophecy update, you know what happens? I lose viewers. I don't gain viewers. I lose viewers. And I'm proud of that because doctrine is all that matters. The prophecy update is the stupidest part of my week. It's fun. It's not, you're, you're learning about what's happening in the end times, but it has no lasting value. This has lasting value. And this is why the people that attend the Bible studies and the people that watch the sermons are the people that I am so thankful for. Those are the people that I'm thankful for. The people on the prophecy update, if they like that kind of stuff, great. I enjoy doing it. It's a fun thing to do. It may be but a carrot that draws. That, well, that's why I do it. That's the only reason why I, uh, right. we, the guy that runs the website said to me one time, you should do a prophecy update because he'll start watching your sermons. And I said, I will do it. And it takes about 40 hours of work a week to do one prophecy update. And yet to me, if I get one person to watch the sermons out of 100, I am very happy because this is where the gold is right here. We'll go on no more 23 September until the end of the class and then we'll be that much closer and I'll bring it up again. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, so um, uh, it's a misrepresented phrase in verse 8-1, but I'm reading again what I just said. In short, believers are in Christ positionally the moment that they call on him. We are justified. We have moved from Adam to Christ. However, we can and often do walk contrary to this positional change. Okay, so a life application for you. Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. It is finished. It is nailed to the cross. Why would we go back and try to attempt to merit his favor by reintroducing that which he has fulfilled? And you know what that is? It's a slap in God's face. It's an insult. It is a slap in his face. It is a rejection, not a, a support of what he has done. It is a rejection of what he has done. He has fulfilled the law. And if I say, well, my pastor says I shouldn't eat pork, so I'm not going to eat pork. That is a rejection of what Christ has done. You're not upholding the law. You're diminishing the value of the cross. He's fulfilled that on our part. Paul says that it doesn't matter what you eat. One person eats only meat. Some people eat vegetables. And he's making these points about the Sabbath. He's making these points about all of these points in the law. He's saying, who cares? 
Who cares if you meet on a Monday or a Tuesday, if you esteem all days the same or if you esteem one day above the, the, all the others? He says, let each person be convinced in his own mind. That's what God wants us to do is to say, I am doing this to honor God. I'm not doing it to honor my pastor who says that I should, you know, give 10% of what I make plus my first fruits and my firstborn. And, you know, you got to give all that to me. Crazy. Anyway, um, so here we go. Um, it's a slap in his face. Let us rest in his work and be satisfied through him. The law which was contrary to us is fulfilled and it is obsolete. Okay, it's done. The law is done. So verse 8-5. Read it 8-5, please, and then I'll read it. And <coughs> For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Almost identical. So we're just going to go with that. A good complementary passage to this verse is found in Galatians 5, 19 through 26. Okay, I'm going to read you that really quickly. Galatians 5, 19 through 26. Corinthians, Galatians 5. <laughs> 19 through 26. Let's see here. My little children, for whom I am uh, labor in birth again until Christ. Uh, that's 4, 5, 19. Um, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, outbursts, contentions, jealousies. Um, I'm sorry, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit." Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, so that's a nice complimentary passage to what we're looking at right there. And it, that'll help one to understand the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> also, in Matthew 15, verse 19, we see Jesus' words concerning such things. Even though it's under the law, the premise still holds true. It says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. It's from the heart that these things come from. I'm going to stop right there. Mrs. Garrett, did you go to the hospital and see Paul? No, okay. I just wanted to know if you had, so. <coughs> oh, he was still in surgery. Well, he's out uh, 17 minutes before we started the class. Uh, Elaine said that he's out and that it was successful and they got the heart valve replaced, so we're happy about that. I just didn't know if you had seen him. Okay, so, um, Let's see here. These are the things which could be described as according to the flesh. All these things that Jesus said and the bad things that Paul said. It should be noted that some of them are a result of our humanity and not necessarily our physical being itself. In other words, the word flesh, which I'm going to speak about in detail this Sunday, comes from the Greek word sarx. It gives the idea of something physical and tangible. But the things that Jesus mentions, like thoughts, false witness, and so on, are not physical in nature. They come from the mind. This then is tied into what Paul is saying. Those who live according to the flesh will inevitably set their minds on things which are according to the flesh. This is the state of man, even those who are believers. The state of our walk with the Lord, excuse me, 
can be determined by how much of our mental capacity is spent mulling over the things which are flesh-directed. How much time do we spend mulling over things which are not of God, we'll say? Just regular course of life events, you know? I'm so hungry. That's, I hate to tell you, but that's of the flesh. Even though we're, we're a soul-body unity, we have to feed our body. But if we're overthinking about food all the time, that becomes a problem, right? If we're overthinking about football, if we're overthinking about, you know, the guy down the road or the girl down the road, depending on what, you know, anyway, if you're, if you're indulging too much in that, then you're not thinking on the things of God, right? You watch too much Fox News and you're angry and you're chewing your teeth and you're, and I do that a lot. I don't watch Fox News, but I, I read a lot of news things and I get very upset at the state of the world. Well, I'm not actually thinking about the things of God. At times I am because I have what you would call righteous indignation, which all of us should have against the things of the world. But there's a point where you can take it to an extreme and you can simply let it consume you. And we can't do that. You know, it is good to know what the, the enemy is doing. It's good to know what the state of the world is. I think the prophecy update gives a good, broad um, idea of what's going on in the world without getting too into, you know, a lot of the other issues. You know, once in a while I'll introduce something political because it has a moral tenet to it or it has a funny tenet to it. And I try to add that in, too. But if you spend too much time reading stuff like that, there's a point where you just lose your connection with the Lord. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure that our connection is first with God and to try as much as possible to put away the things of the world. Okay, so uh, this is tied into what Paul is saying. Those who live according to the flesh will inevitably set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay, it's important to note that being in the flesh is not the same thing as uh, the flesh being in us, though. Okay, when we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, we move from being in the flesh to in the spirit. That is now our positional state. The old man is crucified and our headship changes from Adam to Christ. Okay, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where that's explained exactingly. We move from Adam, we move to Christ. Okay, the flesh is still in us and it will remain so until we die or until the Lord comes for us at the rapture. Until one of those events occurs, we should attempt to live the life we have been granted. As we develop and mature as Christians, we should live according to the Spirit. This is an attitude where our minds and our lives are directed away from worldly things and worldly lusts and towards the heavenly, eternal things. Now, there is a, a saying that I've heard quite a few times, and it's true. Some people kind of try to deride it, and I think maybe it's because it pertains to them. But there is the thought that we can be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Okay, there's a point where you can do this. And this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the rapture and all these things that people go onto these crazy sites and they try to determine all of this stuff. Who's the Antichrist? Who's this? And all, actually, the Antichrist has nothing to do with being heavenly minded. If you're trying to figure him out, you are not thinking on the things of God. Okay, yeah, it's, it, that's right. But if you are into this type of stuff, if you're trying to spend all of your time thinking about, oh, the rapture, the rapture, I can't wait to get out of here, you're not doing any good for the world that you're in, all right? It's fine. Every single day, I hope the Lord comes. Every day, I say, I hope today is the day. I'm going to give you a perfect example. I'm going to give you a perfect example. There's a person on Facebook, all right? And I've mentioned her a couple. She's the one that made the, uh, the Grace Cross shirt that I wore, okay? She always is posting, come today, Lord. 
She's saying this, come today. And yet when she sees this kind of nonsense, she'll make a post and she'll just deride the people that do it. She has a good perspective on what our position is and what we should be wanting. And at the same time, to not be doing this type of stuff. It's so uplifting to see her posts because she's always geared towards Jesus and not towards herself because this here is towards self, okay? This is towards self. I am going to prove that I know what God is going to do and I'm going to benefit from it, okay? And the people that make this stuff up are really benefiting from it. They're making lots and lots of money at other people's expense and at the expense of people getting out there and doing their time. Well, maybe you misguiding. Know? They are misguiding people. It's not maybe. They are misguiding people because we will be here. We will be here on 24 September. I, I, it, the Lord is not going to rapture us on the 23rd of September. It's simply not going to happen. We will be here. And when we are here and we have to put up with what they have done, I, it's been in Fox News. It was on another news service today. Oh, the world's ending. Christians believe that that. Talk about an absolute abomination. What a disgrace that we have to put up with this. You could be so heavenly minded or think you are that you're no earthly good. If you get away from this stuff, you can actually go out and do the things that the Lord has told us to do instead of doing the things that the Lord has told us not to do. Tell people about Jesus. We've got tracks galore there, which Paul graciously paid for. If Paul dies because of what's happening, and I pray it doesn't happen, we will continue to have those tracks up there, and I will hope that they will continue to be taken and handed out. It doesn't cost you anything to leave a track when you have dinner, right? Yeah, I mean, and you never know what it's going to do. How many times have you heard somebody give their testimony where I've heard it, how many times? Well, I was at a restaurant one day, and somebody left a track, and I met the Lord. And you think, it doesn't matter if you gave away 400 of them, they didn't do anything. That one did. Right? And now that person's giving a testimony, which means other people will be inspired to take their tracks and hand them out. So I, I, that is what we're supposed to be doing. So let me go on with this. Um, um, we've received the Lord. We moved uh, from being in the flesh to in the spirit. The old man is crucified or our headship changes. As I said, the flesh is still in us and it will remain so until we die or until the Lord takes us out of the rapture. Until one of those events, we should attempt to live the life that we have been granted as we develop and mature as Christians, we should live according to the Spirit. As Paul says, live according to the Spirit. This is an attitude where our minds and our lives are directed away from our worldly things and worldly lusts and towards the heavenly, eternal things. For some, the change never really takes hold. For others, it may be delayed even for years, and then they suddenly grasp them. And those are the people that I tell you, they're like the Reformed Catholics and the Reformed Jews that have come to Christ and they're really, really knowledgeable and they're on fire for the Lord. The people that met the Lord, they knew that they were saved, but they, it never took hold. And then 10, 15 years later, they actually understand what Christ did for them. And those people are, aren't they? You know, some people like that, that, well, I was saved when I was 12, but it never really hit me until I was 24, 25. They're on fire. They read the word again and again. They start at the beginning and get to the end and they start again. And they're just, they, they, can I tell you about Jesus? And you can see the change in their lives. And there's, there, there was this period where nothing happened. And maybe the Lord was saying, I'm just going to allow this to happen in their lives because it will be sweeter to them when they get to the point where they realize the magnitude of what I did for them. I don't know. He's got it all figured out. But people like that really do a great job of witnessing and of telling people about the Lord. Others may have a profound change in their lives from the moment that they receive Christ. In the end, the sadness of a life saved by the Lord and never bearing fruit for him will be realized in many, many people when they stand before his judgment seat. So let us endeavor to not 
be in that position on that day. And as I said, I said this uh, about a month ago now. People think, well, I've got to go out and I've got to do something so that God will be happy with me on Judgment Day. And I said it, and one lady emailed me the next day and she said, I'm so thankful you said that. I'm, I'm kind of a shut in, I don't get out much. What God wants is for you to have your thoughts and your faith directed towards him. If that means that you can hand out tracts, then do it. If you can't, if you're home and you don't have a lot of social contact with people, if you're talking to the Lord all day long, I guarantee you that you will be rewarded for that because you're demonstrating faith that he is there, that you're having a relationship with him. And that's what he wants. He wants you to acknowledge him in all, what does it say? Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Go ahead. And direct your path. And he will direct your path. Thank you. I knew that, I, I, I knew it was something like that. But if you acknowledge him in all your ways, and if you're a shut-in, he's still directing your path. He's happy with you, and he is giving you what you need right there with him. Just you and him. That's fine. Be content with that. If you're somebody that has the ability to give money to a certain charity or to, you know, go out and cut down somebody's tree that fell over on their house or whatever it is, if you do it in the name of the Lord, there will be a reward for it. Whatever it is, it must be of faith and it will be rewarded, okay? Life application, if we are in the Spirit, then we should endeavor to have the Spirit in us. Be filled with the Spirit through right thinking, reading and studying of the Word, a healthy prayer life, and fellowshipping with others in praise and worship of the Lord. This is certainly pleasing to God, and it is his desire for your life, right? That's what, that's what it's all about right there, is if we do those things, we are pleasing to God. Let's take a moment right now, and let's praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, it is so wonderful to know that these are the things you're pleased with. It is so wonderful to know that you are there, and by simply communicating with you, we're demonstrating faith in you and that you are pleased with that, and your ears are filled with the, the, the sweet sound of our praises, even if they're from voices which are broken or gravelly. That doesn't matter to you. It's the praise of the voice that you hear, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are there to be exalted, and we can, in fact, exalt you. How good you are to us, Lord God. How absolutely wonderful you are to us. Even in our afflictions, we know you're there. And once again, thank you for getting Paul out of surgery today. And uh, we certainly pray for the people we prayed for earlier in the class, and uh, we now commit the rest of the class to you. Amen. Okay, let's go on. Eight, six, please. The middle of it has got the word that I love to see. But, <laughs> but, but, okay. for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. There you go. Okay, you could just think that one through without any commentary from me. For to be carnally minded is death, okay? Think it through. If you're a saved believer and you're carnally, carnally minded, good chance you're going to kick the bucket, right? And I'm not talking about of a long life and happy life. If you're carnally minded and you think, oh, I'm going to go out and racing in my car all day, you're probably going to have an accident. If you're carnally minded and you think, well, I know I'm saved and I shouldn't go over to my neighbor's wife, but I'm going to, you might get shot. That's what he's speaking about. Carnally minded will lead to death right? But he says, um, uh, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now that doesn't mean you're not going to get run over when you're spiritually minded, but the chances are that your life is going to be happy and content in contrast to somebody who's carnally minded. But we'll give some comments now. This continues the explanation of 8.2 through 8.5. It is now the fourth four in those verses. Paul's idea here is the building up of a storehouse of knowledge. Anytime he says four, he's building up a storehouse of knowledge. He's done it four times in a couple of verses. He's building up what you are to know, okay? 
it, it, the, um, Seth Pankratz, okay, he is um, uh, a Greek scholar, just like uh, Will Groban is. Well, he said that when he did a sermon, and I don't know where he's at right now, but when he would do a sermon, he would always go to the Greek first, and he would highlight all of these conjunctions in the Greek, like gar, okay, but, or you've got all these different conjunctions, and he would highlight them, because that is where the, re whether they're translated properly or not in English, that is where the transitions are that are on Paul's mind. Four, 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 four is going to be something that Paul is trying to tell you again and again. He's this, 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 okay? When he says, but, as Burke said, that wonderful contrasting word, it's only three letters, and yet it carries so much signification. He's saying, for this, I'm building this up, but here's the contrast, okay? That's an important thing to do, is to look at these uh, conjunctions, even in the English, if they're properly translated, and that will help you to understand what Paul is doing. So, we'll go... Um, He's building up the storehouse of knowledge concerning his thought in verse 1. We had verse 1 and then 4, 4, 4, 4, 4, four times. Okay, it is a logical defense of the difference between being in the spirit and being in the flesh and what the benefits of being in the spirit are. Two thoughts to reconsider are that anyone who is called on Christ is positionally in the spirit. Okay, as I said before, Think of what is positional, think of what is actual. Think of what is potential, think of what is actual. We are positionally in Christ. We are positionally in the Spirit. We may not actually be there, right? Christ potentially forgave Israel of crucifying. He didn't actually forgive Israel of crucifying him. Only those of Israel who received it. So positional, actual, potential, actual. Think these words through how they re relate to what you're reading, and that will often help you to unpackage what's being said in a way that you can process, okay? So, um, where is it? We're positionally in the spirit. However, we can, and we often do, live in the flesh actually. Paul is giving this instruction to show us the importance of living in the spirit. Four, 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 okay? As he says, to be carnally minded is death. Those who haven't called on Christ are already condemned. We said that earlier, John 3, verse 18, you're condemned already. And they cannot please God. It is impossible. The wall of sin and death in Adam remains. Those who have called on Christ are the ones with the dilemma to resolve. If we remain carnally minded and don't give up on the life of the flesh, it can only lead to death. A person who returns to drugs after calling on Christ will eventually suffer the results of his addiction. Okay, if you know what a life of drugs is like, if you have friends that ha have been or are drug addicts, you know the striking thing about drugs, especially like methamphetamines and th this crystal meth and stuff that people are taking, is they will often show you, like in a news article on the internet, this person was arrested um, in you know uh, 2012, and this is the first time that she was arrested. And they'll show her photo. And then six months later, she was arrested, and she's on meth, and she's starting to look gross. And they get, you've seen it. They'll have, like, she's been arrested ten times in the past six years, and she goes from being a beautiful person with a smile to being a person that all the teeth are missing, their face is sunken, and it's going to happen. You, it will lead to death, okay? It doesn't matter what the addiction is. If you have an addiction, it's going to lead to death, all right? It may not actually but it's heading in that direction is what I'm saying. Some people, you know, scrape through in life, but drugs are one of the, the uh, things that can do that, all right? Uh, this is true with whatever carnal spiritual sin captivates our mind. 
it leads to corruption, it leads to death. On the other hand, Paul says that to be spiritually minded, it's kind of happy, isn't it? It's life and peace. You get this happy feeling from it. Calling on Christ is what restores us to God. It is the bridge that we need to move to peace and to fellowship with him. If this is so, then the obvious path to peace in life would be to live in the spirit, which was granted when we made the call. God will not work contrary to his own will. He willed us to be saved. We were saved. And he says, now, if you do these things, you're going to be happy. He's not going to work contrary to that. He's not going to say, if you do this thing of the flesh, which I saved you from, you'll remain happy. Not going to happen. Okay? Therefore, what he wills us to do is what is right and proper. And where do we get what he wills us to do? Right here. That's right. Right from the word. And for our dispensation, it is the letters of Paul. The whole Bible should be read from beginning to end twice a year. If you read it only 30 minutes a day, you can have the Bible read twice in a year. Okay. I don't think there's any excuse for any person that says, I follow Christ to say, I'm not going to read his word. There's no excuse for it. So you should read your Bible at least twice a year. If you're reading it five or six times a year, you're probably doing a pretty good job. And if you're up to 10 or 11 or 12 times a year, I'd give you a thumbs up. Okay? I would say that that's meeting a really good standard. Each one of you, it's up to you how much time you spend in the Word. But as I say, if you have a Bible, an audio Bible, and you listen to it on the way to work, you've read the Bible twice in a year just by driving one direction. Right? And if you're driving home and you're listening to it again... There's another two times a year. You've listened to the Bible four times a year just by driving. And then when you read it, you're going to get something different than when you listen to it. And so if you do that 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night, then you've read it four more times in a year. That's eight times in a year simply by putting it in your CD and by reading it 30 minutes each time. This is what God wants us. He wants us to have this relationship. And we're not going to understand that relationship unless we're reading the Word. And if you stop reading the Word, you're going to forget the word. It is as natural as forgetting how to ride a bike. You have to start riding the bike again in order to do it. It will come back, but you have to read the word or you're going to lose it. You're never going forward. I mean, you're never stagnant. You're either going forward or you're going back. And that's the only two options. You've got to keep reading the word in order to understand what God wants for you. There's no way around it. This isn't a call for you to come to church and listen to a sermon. That's not what this is. This is a call for you to personally engage with the Creator in the Word. Okay? So, that's your choice. You do what you want, but you read it ten times a year, you got a double thumbs up from me. Okay? So, um, let's see here. Um, where was I? Um, do, 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 do. Uh, Adam remains. This is true. Um, okay. There. Oh, yeah. This train of thought is the obvious conclusion of what Paul is saying, as is evidenced by verse 12, which still lies ahead. We're not going to get there today, I assure you. There he says that we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. The choice must remain, or he couldn't have made that statement, right? If he says we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, if we could not live according to the flesh, then he could not have made that statement. So the choice is ours. We can either remain in the flesh, we can be a debtor to the flesh, or we can live out the life that God has given us in Christ and be a debtor to, how would we say it, to righteousness. Choice is ours, okay? So, um, yes, we are saved, but we can and far too often live as if we are not saved. It's our choice, and so we should endeavor to choose wisely, okay? 
Uh, can we do one more verse? Let me see. It's 8, 7. I've got to give you a life application, but let me see if we can do one more verse. Oh, absolutely, we can. That's only one more page. That'll be fine. Life application on this verse. It is often said that the Bible is a book of don'ts. This is true to an extent, but every don't is given by the one who created us. And therefore, it's an admonition which looks to our ultimate good and for our benefit. Don't get bogged down in the mire of dismissive people's comments about the negative sides of the Bible. Instead, know that for every negative, there's a resulting positive. Don't do this will result in something good in your life, okay? God loves you and has blessed you with a valuable instruction for life and for peace. For every negative that he gives in the Bible, there will be a resulting positive, okay? And for every positive he gives you, there will be a resulting positive. It's good and good with God. It's never bad and good with God, and it's never good and bad with God. It's always good with God. Okay, verse 8, 7, and we'll be done after this. Uh, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Very close. I'll read it anyway. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God. Very similar, just different words. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be, or nor can be. Okay? This verse reiterates the phrase used in Romans 8, 6, which is phronema tis sarkas, or the carnal mind. This is more often than not misunderstood to refer to the mind itself as if it is an authoritative statement on the depravity of man. But Paul is speaking of the minding of the flesh rather than the state of the flesh. Whether a man is in Adam and minding the flesh or dead to Adam and alive in Christ, either way he can mind the flesh. When he does, this avenue is one which is at enmity with God. Everybody see that? We could be in Christ or we can be in Adam, but we can mind the flesh regardless. That's what that's speaking about. This is a, there is a second problem with the misuse of this verse as well. Far too often it's used as a text to claim that any person who is not called on Christ is unable to perceive any good at all or even understand the contents of the Bible in a real capacity. I see people do this all the time on Facebook. They say, well, the carnal mind is to you with God. You can't understand the things of God, right? They, they, they say things like that, not thinking that through, okay? It's not true. It becomes a tool of superior knowledge and spiritual depth for the believer against the lesser unregenerate mind. They're saying, I have the spirit, and so I can discern the things of God, and you can't because you're not regenerated by God. And you see people do this all the time, and they will do it against other Christians as well. I understand because I have more of the spirit than you. It's absolutely nothing to do with what this is talking about. This is problematic because it would then logically imply that nobody <coughs> could call on Christ. See that? If you're unregenerate and you can't know the things of God, then you could never call on Christ. So that's one problem right there. The message would be beyond fallen man's ability to grasp. This leads to the misguided Calvinist doctrine of being regenerated in order to believe. You see where that came from now. They're saying, well, you're carnally minded, and so you can't understand the things of God, and therefore God must regenerate you in order to understand the things of God, in order to be saved. That is absolutely false. That is not correct. It's not a heresy, but it is false doctrine, okay? After this, according to Calvinism, the belief is that 
um, what the belief is then what leads to salvation. You're regenerated in order to believe, and then you believe and you are saved. This concept is found where in scripture? You tell me where that's found. Anybody tell me where that's found in scripture? What verse tells that doctrine? There's a lot of silence in here, and I'm glad to hear it because it is not recorded in the Bible. There's no place in scripture which says you can't know the things of God in order to be saved, so God must regenerate you, and then you will be saved. It is not in the Bible. You're not going to find anything that even hints at that. Yes? The scripture says, except, unless you accept like a little child. That's right. Just accept it. That you accept it. You just simply believe what the, believe. the Bible says. Okay. Now, why did Jesus pick a little child in that particular instance? Let me ask you something. If I am a wicked person and I want to kill that kid and I put poison into a glass and I say, here, here's a nice glass of water. What is that kid going to do? He's going to drink it. They're naive. They, they don't understand human depravity. They just simply, okay. You know, if you tell a kid, well, here's a better example. This is a, this is a real true example. You talk about people that are insane. During the Iraq-Iran war, there were minefields between the two countries, right? How did they get the minefields cleared? They took kids and they gave them plastic keys with neck on their necklaces and they said, these are your keys to heaven. Go. And off they went blowing up minefields. If you tell a little child something, they're going to believe it. And that's why he used the little child as an example. And people use that for wicked reasons, too. So think about think about that. But you're absolutely right about that precept. If this were true, if this Calvinist idea of regeneration were true, then after being regenerated, then the Bible should be completely understandable to the now regenerate soul, right? They shouldn't have to go to Bible studies at all. There should be no reason because they now have complete knowledge of what God is telling them in the Bible, and they just pick it up and read and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done, right? That's exactly the logic that you must come to if you follow that through to its inevitable end, okay? This is the very last thing that is seen in believers. That's why we're in Bible studies right now. And when I do a sermon, everybody says, oh, that was a great sermon. I learned a lot today. Well, guess what? I learned a lot the day I typed that sermon. It's not like I had any, oh, Charlie's super smart about these things. I had no idea that those things were in there. None, right? And there are times where I will read every commentary on a single verse, and sometimes it'll be pages and pages and pages, and I read every commentary of about eight scholars, and nobody will have any comment on why that verse is there. And I'll have to set it aside, and I'll say, Lord, I don't understand this. I need I know this is telling us something, and I'll go, she knows, I'll go sleep on the couch at night. I won't sleep, I'll just lay there all night thinking about five or six words in the Hebrew. And all of a sudden, bing, I'm able to get all the things of the day off my mind. The Lord allows me to just, you know, kind of just mellow out, and it'll come. (laughs) Or maybe I'll read a commentary out of 12 commentaries, and there will be one word that a commentator says that'll say, oh, And he didn't get what is in there. He just uses one particular word about an analysis, and there it is. And I said, I understand. Taking that word and now applying it here, you know, whatever. That would not be needed if Calvinist doctrine was true. We'd all just have every knowledge of God, and we wouldn't need to go to these Bible studies. It is not the way the things are, though. There is more disagreement on biblical doctrines among faithful believers than there are grains of sand on the sea. Sure. Seashore, okay? 
I absolutely assure you of that. You go to a church where they believe something, and you go to another church, and they're very, very similar. Pastors went to the same seminary. They have the same uh, statement of faith. And within 10 minutes, you're going to have a disagreement on what that pastor says and what this pastor says. Because we are humans. We are fallible. We cannot discern the things of God perfectly. It is impossible. Okay? And that was one of the reasons where that uh, person that we got to go. I'll talk about that later. We've got five more minutes. Okay, so another validation of this can also be found in the Old Testament, such as in verses of Genesis 5, 22 through 24, which say, listen to this, Enoch walked with God, okay, 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. If Enoch had many, if Enoch and many others prior to Christ walked with God, then it's obvious, it's obvious that the Calvinist viewpoint is untenable on this issue. The carnal mind is the minding of the flesh. It is not the state of the mind. It is the minding of the flesh, okay? Such things as those found in Calvinist doctrine on this issue are not taught by Paul, nor does the Bible imply them at any point. In fact, throughout the Bible, those who have the Spirit, Old Testament, David, for example, and the Corinthian believers in the New, continuously fail to meet the things of God, don't they? David failed. The Corinthians failed. Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians so badly that it was embarrassing. And 2,000 years later, we're still reading the embarrassment of the Corinthians because they didn't understand, okay? And they often even failed to properly grasp it at all. They continuously fail to meet the law of God. They can't grasp it. They simply cannot do it. All right. Instead, they mind the flesh, even though they have the spirit and thus are not subject to the law of God. That's what Paul says. They're not subject to the law of God. And yet they don't understand anything about their theology. None of it. Zero. When minding the flesh, indeed, they cannot be. This truth is even seen in the apostles at times, isn't it? Peter book of Galatians, Paul had to openly rebuke him. He spent uh, uh, probably uh, half of a uh, chapter and maybe more. He goes from, I think it's chapter one, and then he gets into chapter two, and he talks about this failing of Peter. Maybe it's chapter two. Anyway, the apostles themselves screwed up. They did not know the things of God. Or if they did, they would turn and they'd walk in the flesh for whatever reason, and somebody would have to come along and rebuke them. Peter and, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas had such an argument, it's called in the Greek a paroxysm. They almost came to blows over a dispute about another believer, right? And they never reconciled, as far as the Bible shows. He never mentions Barnabas again in a positive light, but he does mention Mark again in a positive light. But these things show that there is a dispute among believers about something that probably shouldn't be a dispute. But they're carnal, they're fallen, and they do not always discern the things of God, Okay. Where this verse says, for it is not subject to the law of God, the it is speaking of the carnal mind, not the person. The carnal mind, be it in a believer or in a non-believer, is not and cannot be subject to the law of God. If you're living in a carnal mind, you're not subject to God's law. That's why I talked about earlier. If you're thinking about the things of God, you will be subject to God's law. You'll be fulfilling the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. This is the reason why we are asked to think on that which is noble, reject that which is evil, fix our eyes on Jesus, Jesus, and all of these other things that were admonished in the Bible. 
when we fail to do this, our minds are obviously not subject to the law of God. Life application just on time today. When you were born as a human, you can never get more human, but humanity can get more of you, can it? When you were born into Christ, you can never get more born again, but Christ can get more of you, can't he? Right? This is what Paul is speaking of. A person in Christ is in Christ, but Christ is in people in varying degrees. This is a state that we allow based on our obedience to him, our proper knowledge and yielding to him, and our fellowshipping with him. If this is the state that you desire, then fix your thoughts on him and allow his spirit to fill you and guide you. Good stuff. Okay. All right. Eight, eight. I need to remember that, but I don't have a pen handy right now, so we'll put that right there. I'm going to read Spurgeon's. It was so beautiful. I got to read it one more time, and then we'll pray out of here. What, with the earliest birds, I will make one more singer in the great hmm. concert hall of God. I will not want more rest or longer time to myself to consider all my troubles. I will give my best time, the first hour of the day, to the praise of my God. Heavenly Father, we do praise you. You are so, so wonderful. Your word is so precious, and it is given for our good. It's given for our instruction. It's given for our ability to become holy as you are holy. And it's not going to happen when our minds are on the things of the flesh. So help us to stay away from the things of the flesh, to concentrate on what is good, to perfect ourselves in Christ Jesus to your glory. And when we fall short, we know that we have an advocate who is standing there saying, he is mine, despite his failing, her failing, they are mine. Thank you for Christ who did this for us and who is willing to stand up for us even when we beat ourselves up. And Lord, we certainly do one more time praise you for Paul's successful surgery. We pray that he will heal properly and he'll be okay. We pray for the other people I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, class as well. We pray that they will have healing, that they will have restoration, and that they will be uh, brought back to a state of wholeness. And if it's not your case to uh, or choice for that to happen, we would pray that they would be willing just enough energy, would be left with just enough energy to praise you through their trials because you are worthy of it, even in our states of affliction. So we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we commit the rest of our week to you, knowing that we will fail you, but you are there to lead us on the right path. So help us to do that, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. Okay, we're going to turn this baby back, and we'll say goodbye to the folks online. Let's see here. We got break. There it is. Almost, Almost there. there. Almost, Almost there. there. Almost, Almost there. there. Okay. okay. We love, we love you all. Have, have a wonderful, wonderful week. week. <laughs> Take, Take good care. care. Bye bye. Okay, okay we, got that. we got that. We got that. There. there. You talked about the uh, the person who's just at home and they can't go anywhere. Yes. yes. The Lord. The song "His Eyes on the Sparrow" was inspired by a shut-in who said. You know, why should I be discouraged? Um, his eyes on the sparrow, I know he watches me. And a woman was so moved, she went home and wrote that song. Wow, wow. wow. It's just one of my favorites. It's one of my hair standing up. Oh. Yeah. Wonderful song. A shut-in kept praising and trusting and serving. Wow. Unbelievable.